Hello. Welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Acts 10, verse 23b. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourself know how how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person's common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, A man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your arms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, roll here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Unless for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourself know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receive forgiveness of sins through his name. It's, um, it didn't take me all that long to get here today. I, I live in West Ride these days. And... Uh... Well, it's only about 30 minutes if you go through the tunnel to get from West Ride, about 25 k's. But um, imagine if I'd walked uh, to get here today. That would be sort of impressive. 25 k's, it would take a decent amount of time, wouldn't it, to walk? And you'd probably be pretty impressed if I walked all the way here to speak to you. But that's, in fact, what the Apostle Peter did in the passage that we looked at just a few minutes ago. He walked, but not just from West Ride. He walked kind of from Mount Druid. Uh, it's, it's kind of 50 k's from Mount Druitt to here. It's 50 k's from Joppa, where Peter was, uh, to come to Caesarea, where his uh, 
His hearers, Cornelius and all his friends, were waiting to hear him. And that would be impressive, wouldn't it? In fact, you'd think it was a fairly impressive and important message that he might need to take that long and that much trouble. Two days there and speak to them. And it was a big message. It was a momentous message that he brought with them. It was the first time a Jewish Christian speaker had told the message of Jesus to Gentiles. And that was a huge deal, a bigger deal than we realise. Because in the ancient world, the world of the Bible, there were only two kinds of people. There were the Jews, God's holy, special people, and there was everybody else in the world called the Gentiles or the nations is the other way that the word's translated. And those everybody else, those nations, as far as the Jews were concerned, were the dogs. They even called them the dogs. They were pagans. They were hopeless and helpless. They had no God. And in fact, the Jews were forbidden to eat with them and even to associate with them, as it says in our passage, as Peter says. But here was Peter, a devout Jew, a messenger of this Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who walks for two days in order to do the thing he's never done before in his life, he said in this passage, and that is to speak to a bunch of Gentiles about this Jesus, to the gathered friends in Cornelius's house. And the sermon that he delivered to them is summarised in our passage today, and it's going to be the one that we're going to dig into and look at. And we're going to discover why Peter thought it was so important to speak this message to Cornelius. Because he realised that God does not show favouritism. He says that in the opening verse of our little passage here, uh, in verse 34. Truly, I understand now that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And we'll find out as the passage proceeds just what it means to fear God and do what is right. But the point of this opening for Peter is that this message he has, the message about Jesus, is for everyone, even for people that he had to this point despised and never associated with in his life. It's for people who were brought up Jewish like Peter. It's for Gentiles who worshipped all kinds of gods and none. And that seems to me to be a very interesting and helpful perspective for people like us today. I don't think our world has ever been more divided, do you? More broken up into tribes and groups and warring parties and political fights and ethnic fights, fights over gender, between genders, fights between men and women. But here is one message that Peter is bringing, a message that speaks to absolutely everyone. And as we'll see, it's the message of Christmas. It's the message of Christ. Key about Christmas, the clue is in the name. Christ is the meaning of Christmas. And in this passage, we're going to find out who this Christ is and was. And why Peter thought it was so important to walk so far to tell these people about this Christ. So let's follow along and see what Peter says to them in this momentous sermon. The first time that a bunch of non-Jews like us. Can I just get a kind of straw poll? Is there anyone here with a Jewish heritage? Jewish parents? Just trying to see. No, I think we are entirely a Gentile audience. Agile, a bunch of pagans and dogs, as far as the Jews were concerned, who didn't deserve anything from God. But Peter came to bring the message even to people like us. What did he have to say? Well, he kind of starts off in verse 36 with a sort of intro or kind of a heading. He says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, 
He is Lord of all. And this is just a little opening sentence from Peter to summarize what he's about to say. And there's already a hint here of why this message he has is of universal significance for the whole world, not just for Jews. It's about peace, and goodness knows we need that. We all need that. But more than being about peace, it's about a person who is described as Lord of all. A Lord who is king or master, that's what the word Lord means, ruler, who is ruler of all. And as we'll see, this really is the guts of the message that Peter is going to explain. It's a message about a new peace that has been won established through this person, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. I have a feeling that I'm touching things here, Charles, but that's all right. I'll just press ahead. Everything all right? I'll keep on going. Now, uh, let's dig in and see what the, this message actually is, this sermon that Peter was, um, was delivering. And like all sermons, it has three points. Every sermon has to have three points. And Peter's sermon has three points as well. His sermon is about something they already knew, something that they needed to know. That's two key facts about Jesus and then two key points that follow on from those two key facts. And that's really the outline of what I'll be working through in the next little while. It's, it's what Peter says. And let's start off with what they already knew. Because the news about this Jesus, this Christ, had already begun to spread, at least in its bare bones. And these Gentile listeners, these nations, these Cornelius and his mates, they already knew something about Jesus. And that's what Peter starts and says to them in verse 37. You yourselves know, he says in verse 37, what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It was no secret that this Jesus from Nazareth was a good and powerful man, a healer, a miracle worker. That he was linked with the famous John the Baptist, who was one of the most famous prophets of the day, and that his ministry was actually known everywhere. And these things, Peter says, you already know. How did they know it? Well, because these events and the person of Jesus and the existence of Jesus and John the Baptist and all this stuff were well-known public historical events. The basic details of who Jesus was was common knowledge. And this is why we find in ancient non-Christian historical sources like Roman historians like Tacitus and Pliny or Jewish historians like Josephus, regular mentions of Jesus and of John the Baptist as historical figures. And this is very important because the message that Peter is bringing to these nations, the message that I'm bringing to you today, it's not an abstract message about brotherly love or about joy or or about goodwill, it's not a philosophy. It's about public historical events, about things that really happened and that have a certain meaning. Peter's message is about a well-known historical real person, Jesus of Nazareth. And Cornelius and his friends knew that very well, and you probably do as well. I guess no matter how new you are to Christianity, you've, you've heard something about this Jesus. And you know that he was a real person. But Peter is about to tell us the two key things you need to know about this Jesus. The two key historical facts that make sense of who he was and what he did. And the first of these is that they killed him. See there in verse 39. Look at verse 39. We are witnesses of all that he did, this Jesus, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. 
They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. That's another way of talking about crucifixion, a humiliating punishment that the Romans used around the ancient world to utterly humiliate their prisoners and anyone who rebelled against them. They would nail them to a cross, usually naked, and let them suffocate in public, naked on a cross. Terrible humiliation, the most awful form of execution imaginable. That's what they did to this guy. They hung him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not all to all the people, but to us who'd been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So the first key fact, what is it? That they killed this guy. They put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree. This man who went about Israel doing good, healing people, a man whom God was obviously with, what happens to him? His own people reject him and kill him. That's the they in verse 39. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. He's talking about his own countrymen. He's talking about the Jewish people he, he grew up with, the country in which Jesus went about doing all this good. They engineered his brutal execution in the most horrible way imaginable. Why would God allow a thing like that to happen? I mean, what a travesty. This good, powerful man might be executed in this awful way. Well, Peter will explain why in just a minute. But first, let's go on to the second key fact that Peter wants them to know about this Jesus, and that is that God raised him from the dead. See there in verse 40? But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, and not to all the people, but to us who'd been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. First key fact about Jesus, that the authorities unjustly killed him. It's shocking. It's unjust. But it's not that remarkable. It happens all the time, doesn't it? Evil, corrupt authorities kill good, just men. It's happened all throughout history. It's not that remarkable. But this second key fact is remarkable, to say the least, which I guess is why Peter emphasises it, that he saw the risen Jesus, this man had been killed. God raised him from death, says Peter. It really happened. I saw it. I even ate and drank with him, and others saw it and ate and drank with him as well. You see, Peter's not talking about a metaphor here or a vision. He's not saying that this Jesus whom they killed, he kind of lives on in our hearts. He's not talking about that experience that uh, some people have. My mother had, for example, when my father died. For some months afterwards, she was quite sure he was in the house with her, quite sure that he'd almost hear his voice sometimes speaking to her or think that he was just there in the next room. People who've lost a loved one often feel that way. The loved one is still with them in some sort of way. They're not talking about this. He's saying, I saw this guy and I ate and drank with him. It was a real physical, historical rising from the dead. This is remarkable, isn't it? It's extraordinary. But it's not impossible. In fact, it's not even that implausible. Because if God had sent this Jesus to do good, and who was with him, as the passage says, doing good and doing great deeds throughout Israel, the God who made everything, the God who was the all-powerful king of the universe, the God who gives life to everyone and everything, why should it be incredible to us that this God would raise this unjustly crucified man from the dead. He's God after all. 
I think we sometimes think that people in the ancient world were gullible, you know, they were fools. You know, they believed lots of fairy stories and, and they would disbelieve anything. I don't think that's accurate. Um, firstly, people today believe anything. Just if you live long enough, it's astonishing the, thing, the crazy things that people believe. And there were people in the ancient world who believed crazy things as well, I'm sure. They weren't gullible fools any more than the rest of us were. They knew that people didn't rise from the dead in the normal course of events. But Peter, like so many who saw Jesus and ate and drank with him, were convinced that he did rise from the dead, that God, the powerful God of the universe, had raised this Jesus from the dead and caused him to appear to many people. And so these are the two key facts about Jesus that Peter wants Cornelius and his friends to understand. This man who you know about, who was a good and great man, they killed him. But after he was killed, God raised him from the dead and we saw it and we even had dinner with him. So, okay, those are the two key facts of the Christian message that Peter wants to tell these people and I want to tell you. So what of it? So what? Lots of people die and lots of extraordinary things happen in history. Lots of really extraordinary things happen in our world. Why is this so special? What does it mean? What does it have to do with us? What does it have to do with Cornelius and those who are living there with him? Why is it such a momentous and important message? It's because of what these two facts, these two events mean. It's because of what follows from these two events. And that's what Peter goes on to say in the next part of his final part of his sermon, in the punchline of his sermon. He says, firstly, that because of the resurrection, because this Jesus has been risen up from the dead by God, God has appointed him to be the judge. See there in verse 42, this Jesus who was crucified and raised up from the dead, God has appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead. And this is the first key element really in the Christian message. Strangely, the message of Christmas, although we rarely think of it this way, that Jesus has been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. And then, in other words, the judge of absolutely everyone. That covers everyone, doesn't it? The living and all those who will live or ever have lived. Peter is speaking here, of course, of the great day of judgment, the great day of reckoning, the day that the Bible talks about again and again, the day when all people will stand before God, the king, the judge, to give an account of their lives. And on that day, he's saying, the person who will be sitting on the judge's bench, the person before whom you will appear and to whom you will give account, is this man, risen from the dead, Jesus Christ. In fact, you may not know this, but that's what Jesus' name means. That's what the word Christ means. Christ is not Jesus' surname. You've probably heard that before. It's not his second name, like his family name was Christ. It's a title that essentially means king or anointed one. It's an Old Testament title and a phrase that God has not only raised him up from the dead, but appointed him to be the Christ, the Lord, the judge, the king. Now, we're not used to this idea. We're not used to the idea <clears throat> that kings are also judges. But in the ancient world, that was routinely the case. We're used to the idea that you have your parliament with your president sort of things, and you have your courts over here. You are separated, separation of powers, and who judge cases and, and give judgment. But in the ancient world and in much of human history, those two things were the same thing. If you were the king, if you were the ruler, if you were the president, 
then you are the ultimate judge, the ultimate one to give justice to the people. The ultimate one, like Solomon did in ancient Israel, to rule and judge cases and deliver justice to people. And Peter is saying that on account of being raised from the dead, this is who this Jesus now is. He's the guy who's set on the kingly throne. He's the Christ, and he will be the one to judge everybody when that great day comes. Now, you may be wondering, and I also wonder if Cornelius had been wondering this and his friends, Christmas message is supposed to be a wonderful, happy message of goodwill and peace and love and joy and all that kind of stuff, but this doesn't sound so great. I thought this was supposed to be a good news message of peace. But is this good news that a man has been appointed who's going to judge absolutely everyone in the world, living or dead? Doesn't sound like great news. Except when you think about it for a little while and realise that it is kind of good news, isn't it? I mean, there are so many times in our world when we crave justice. We want judgment. We normally give it a different name these days. We call it accountability. But it's the same thing. We don't want people to get away with stuff. We don't want people, politicians, the bosses, the corrupt business leaders, the corrupt union leaders, the people who abuse children, the people who abuse women. We don't want them to get away with it. We want the corrupt and the dishonest and the wicked to be brought to book, to be called to account. We want them to be judged. And we want all the people they've been cheated, who've been cheated and they've mistreated. We want them to be vindicated and to have justice. We want that, don't we? We want it except just not for us. Because we know that if we had to give an account, we would be all guilty on all sorts of fronts. We have so many things in our lives that we, we don't want our mothers to know about. So many things that we're a bit ashamed of. So many ways in which we fall short. We know we fall short of what we should do or what is right and good. And in particular, we fall short in the biggest and most serious way possible. We fall short in our loyalty and service and obedience to the King, to the God who is our King, to the risen Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. Would you be able to say hand on heart that you are his loyal and obedient servant in everything in life? I certainly couldn't. Could you stand before him with confidence on that great big day, that last day, and say, I've done absolutely everything I should, and I have a completely clean conscience, and I've got nothing to be judged for? I certainly couldn't, and I know none of you could either. I know none of you could. Because we're all the same. We're all rebels. We all don't want anyone dictating our lives or telling us what to do. And we all, in our own very fallen, very human way, do the wrong thing by other people all the time. We're all like this and we'll all stand before this judge, the judge that Peter says is the Lord Jesus Christ. And can you see that that's why this is a message for everyone? Why Peter comes and tells this to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to the nations, and why it's a message for me and for you, for Anglos and Asians, for people born in the country in the 1960s and people born in Malaysia in 2001 or something, it's for, it's for all of us because he has been appointed as the judge of all and the Lord of all, says Peter. Kind of wondering what the mood was like in the room, Peter speaking at this point, what Cornelius and all his friends were thinking. They've asked this guy and he's taken an awful lot of trouble to come all this way 
to speak this message, to hear this message, only for them to tell him that God had appointed this risen Jesus Christ as their judge. I wonder what they were feeling. I guess they were glad that Peter didn't stop there, and I am too. Because he goes on in verse 43 to the other key aspect of the Christian message, the second key truth of the Christian message. In verse 43, he says, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This Jesus, who's the Christ, the Lord of all, the judge, the guy who we're going to all stand before and have to give account to, in his name there is also forgiveness of sins for everyone. Again, no matter who you are, everyone who believes in him. Now, what does this mean? It means that the prophets, that's what Peter says, the prophets in the Old Testament, he's talking about the Old Testament authors here, who prophesied what God was going to do in the future, that what the prophets had foretold was coming true at last, that God had done something about the sins of his people and the sins of the world. We had a message from the prophets in our Bible reading about how God was going to bring salvation to the whole ends of the earth and not just to the Jews. We also could have read this passage from Isaiah 53 that I'll just read to you. We're writing more than 700 years before these events. Isaiah says about the one whom God would send, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone, each of us, turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. That's what the prophets looked forward to. And Peter says, this is what has happened through the death of Jesus the Christ. There's now forgiveness of sins through his name because he has died on this cross, been hung on this tree, to bear the transgressions and iniquities of everyone. That's why there can be forgiveness of sins through his name, says Peter. Your name is who you are. Your name is your reputation. Your name is all that you've achieved. Your name carries with it all the stuff you've done in your life and how people know you. That's your name. It's who you are and what you've done. It's your character. It's your authority. And that's why if you're the king, if that's the kind of name you have, if I was King Tony... It means that I could issue pardons to people galore for things that they've done. If you're a convicted criminal and you lived in my kingdom and I wanted you to set free, I could just write a pardon for you and Donald Trump will probably do this repeatedly over the next three months and just let people out of prison because you can do that if you're the president. You can do that if you're the king. And when you get to the door of the jail, you just have to hand the jailer the piece of paper that has that name on it, the name that has the authority to set you free to forgive all your past, to wipe out all your crimes, and to let you go. That's the kind of thing Peter's talking about here, that Jesus has the kind of name that can write that pardon because he died on the cross to bear our transgressions, as the prophets foretold, to, to be chastised and wounded and killed for our sins, to be judged instead of us on that tree. And so when we stand before him at that judgment day, we can hand him that piece of paper with his own name on it, declaring that we can be forgiven 
and forgiven of all our sins. See, it's no wonder that Peter introduced his sermon by saying it was good news and that it was good news about peace through Jesus Christ. Because through that death of Jesus on the cross, we can no longer be enemies of God and sinners and rebels and judged before God, but forgiven. The slate wiped clean, now at peace with God. This is the most fantastic news. That's what the word gospel means, really. It means fantastic news. And this is the most fantastic news. I'm so glad that that's there, verse 43. I'm glad that Peter didn't stop at verse 42. But can you also see that verse 43 about the good news of forgiveness makes no sense without verse 42, without judgment? There's nothing to be forgiven of if, if there's no judgment. If Jesus is not going to call me to account for my sins, then I don't need his forgiveness. In fact, some Christians today avoid talking about that first aspect of the Christian message about judgment because they think they can come up with a better, nicer message without mentioning it. Now, it's very foolish and very misguided. The Christian message that Peter speaks here in this momentous, very early example of Christian preaching, it's a gospel of forgiveness of sins, but it makes no sense at all without the judgment of God that's going to come through Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all. But of course, I've left one vital thing out. How do you get hold of one of these pardons? How do you get your name? How do you get Christ's name written on that piece of paper that you have that forgives you of your sins? Well, he says in verse 43, it's by believing in him. It comes to everyone who believes in him, he says. It's pretty simple, really. You just have to trust this Jesus. That's what believe means. It means to rely on someone or to trust them or depend upon them. The word here and throughout the Bible simply means to put all your weight, to put all your eggs in that basket, to stake your life on this, to trust this, to depend on this. That's what the word believe or faith means. And Peter is simply saying that in order to receive this forgiveness, that's what you need to do. You need to trust and depend on this Jesus who died on the cross. You need to put all your eggs in that basket. You need to depend on him and, and give him all your loyalty and all your life. You need to trust him. That's what it means to believe in Jesus, to trust in him. It means acknowledging that he is the Lord and the judge and that he is the saviour, the forgiver of sins as well. It means turning back to him and trusting him with everything. Well, that's Peter's message to Cornelius. That's the punchline, that this Jesus, who is the Lord and Christ, the judge of all, is also the one in whose name is forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. And maybe you can see now why he walked 50 k's to tell them this message and why he thought it was so important. It's a message that's gone all around the world. It's a message that's changed the world. It's why Christmas is part of the culture of most parts of the world. It's why it's celebrated everywhere. It's why the birth of this one who would rise to die and to rise again to be the judge and the forgiver of all. It's why we celebrate it and remember it. It's a message I've, I've brought to you again here this morning, just as it's been repeated again and again down the centuries in every culture and in every place. Because it's a message that applies to everyone in the world. Every one of you, regardless of who you are, regardless of your race or ethnicity, regardless of where you were born or how you were raised, 
regardless of your culture or subculture, regardless of your gender or creed, regardless of what you've done or haven't done, regardless of how religious or upright you think you may be or how rebellious and sinful you think you may be. Cornelius, after all, was a pretty upright and impressive guy, it says in this passage, and yet he needed to hear this message just as much as all of us. No matter who you are or what you've done, no matter how religious you are or not, every single one of us will stand before this Lord Jesus Christ on that day. And every single one of us will fail that test. And every single one of us can be forgiven through the power of his name, through what he has done on the cross. And this is the only thing you really need to get this Christmas. You get all sorts of stuff at Christmas. In our family, we have a kind of Kris Kringle thing where you've got to all put your your gifts in, and I'm always racking my brains for something that I could possibly need or want to put on the list for other people to get me. I, don't, I never know what people should get me. But this is one thing we all need to get this Christmas if we haven't gotten it already, and that's forgiveness. Forgiveness for all the ways in which we fall short and in which we damage each other and ourselves and the world around us. And getting it is quite simple. You just open your heart and your mouth and you speak to God and you tell him of your intention to put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as the one who's going to forgive your sins. To recognise that he's the Lord that you bow before and trust and to receive the forgiveness he offers. And I'm going to pray a prayer now that says just that. And you can pray this prayer along with me if you'd like to. So why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on that tree so that we could be forgiven. And thank you for raising him from the dead, dear Father, to be the Lord, the King, and the Judge of all. Dear God, I know that there are many things in my life that I deserve to be judged for. But please give me the forgiveness that you offer through the name of Jesus. Please forgive me because of him and all that he did. And please change me so that I can live from now on, trusting in him as the Lord of all. Amen. We didn't read the rest of the passage in Acts 10. After Peter delivered that message, Cornelius and his friends, their lives changed forever because they believed this message. And if you prayed that prayer just then for the first time, the same thing has happened. Your life has shifted. Something momentous has happened. God has welcomed you back and forgiven you. And everything has changed. And this is something you're going to need some help with. So if that's you, if you did pray that prayer this morning for the very first time, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And make sure you tell somebody, tell the person you came with or a friend that you know nearby. Come and talk to Charles afterwards or tell him, or perhaps there might be a way you can indicate that. Um, do we have sort of cards or things we fill in or messages? Uh, uh, exactly. Charles will tell you about that in just a moment. There's a digital way you can let us know about that as well. But if you prayed it for the hundredth time or the thousandth time that prayer, and if you're a Christian, you constantly pray that prayer, then never stop being thankful for that forgiveness that Christ has won for us on the cross and never stop living with Jesus as your Lord. And if you're unsure, if you don't fit into either of those categories, you didn't pray the prayer for the first time or for the thousandth time, if you're just a bit unsure or not sure what to do next, 
and Charles will tell you how you can do something about that and find out more, and we'll do that in just a moment. Thanks for downloading and listening to this podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on iTunes to automatically download our most recent podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Campus Bible Study, you can visit our website, campusbiblestudy.org. Thank you.